Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Take Home Reading, a new audio series from the Wheeler Centre. In each episode, we'll be speaking to an Australian writer about their latest book and hearing a reading from it. This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders, past and present. We pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of all lands this broadcast reaches. I'm Stella Charles and I work in the programming team at the Wheeler Centre. Usually I host our monthly reading series, The Next Big Thing, but since we haven't been able to gather together for a few months now, we thought we'd bring these readings to you instead. Today I'm talking to Katarina Bryant. Katarina is a writer based in South Australia. Her work has appeared in Griffith Review, Island and VoiceWorks, among others. She has been shortlisted for the 2019 The Lifted Brow and RMIT Nonfiction Lab Prize for Experimental Writing, the 2018 Feminazi Memoir Prize and the 2016 Scribe Nonfiction Prize for Young Writers. She's currently a PhD candidate in creative writing at Flinders University and her debut memoir and the focus of our conversation is Hysteria, which was released in September with New South Books. Hi, Katarina. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Stella. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your book, Hysteria? Sure. Um, So the book is the story of four women whose lives intersected with the idea of hysteria. I look at Blanche Whitman, who was known as the Queen of Hysterics at the Salpetriere Hospital, and Mary Glover, whose experience encapsulated the tension between the supernatural and the medical in 1600s England. It's also my own story of becoming ill and being diagnosed with an illness that would have once been called hysteria. And within that, finding belonging and strength and compassion within these stories of the women I research and write about. It's a beautiful book. Um, Congratulations on it. I read it a few months ago now for the first time and it's definitely something that's really stayed with me. Um, You've spoken a little bit about how you began to write this book pretty soon after you you first started experiencing these mysterious seizures, sort of as a way of making meaning of what you're experiencing. Can you talk a little bit about um, your approach to writing and whether you ever imagined that what you were working on would end up in this form or whether it was more about sort of getting through the experience at the time? I definitely, as I was writing, didn't imagine it becoming a book. I was writing because I was still living with this ableist concept of my worth being tied to my productivity and I couldn't leave the house and work as much as I once could. I couldn't do a lot of things that I once could, but I felt I could write. And writing too within this allowed me to process a lot of my experience. It allowed me to process a lot of rage that I didn't even realise I was experiencing. I'd come home shattered after a medical appointment and write. And then only later reading back could I, I could see my frustration on the page. And it also allowed me to collate the material I was reading because I was voraciously reading 
for an answer. I felt if I could find an account that was the same as mine somewhere on the internet in a book, I could find the way out of an experience that I was not yet had come to terms with. So it was a lot of searching and collating, but I didn't, I didn't think I was working on a book. I was just trying to live, I suppose. It's so interesting, that idea that like by writing as a way of processing, you're kind of hoping that the narrative of the words you're putting down might end with a resolution the way that like you expect a story to um, and that research aids that process of coming to like a resolution or figuring out kind of figuring out what it is that you're experiencing as a way to move on or quote unquote, like get better. How do you sort of look back and see that now? Like what, what's that process been like of figuring out where your own experiences and this book stands in terms of not necessarily reaching that, that expected conclusion or endpoint? I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> that makes such sense. I was looking at the book as a way to carve out a narrative, as you said, and only towards the end of the process of writing did I realise that, of course I was doing that. We're told that illness has a narrative structure and that it ends, and we're told that illness is a tragedy that is or should be overcome. And... So I was trying to fit my own narrative within that structure that we've all been given to tell about illness and disability and it wasn't fitting and through the act of writing I was able to see how much of a trope that was and how really the experience of living with chronic mental illness like I do is not the difficult part, the difficult part is finding how to live within a world that doesn't accommodate that and doesn't believe that it's ongoing, that it should be fit within the neat narrative arc. And once I shifted mentalities into thinking about how to live and also placing myself within this self-created historical community, uh, these women who one of you wrote of them as my ancestors, which I love, that's how I want to view them. I realised I didn't need to be within this flat, a rather boring narrative arc, but I could exist in a more interesting nuance. That's really beautiful and yeah, really speaks to this kind of space that you're carving out here between memoir and research and this context you've built for yourself. Um, at, at what point did you know that you were going to incorporate these historical accounts of hysteria into what you were writing? Was that initially part of just the research you were doing to try and come to terms with what you're experiencing? Can you give a little bit of the overview of the stories that you've kind of woven through your own? Mm, so I, as I was writing my own experience, I was reading a lot and looking to history 
and was weaving that within what I was experiencing. But it was only through the editorial stage that I was able to, well, I wasn't able to, my editor was actually able to draw out each woman who was existing within these chapters already. Each part of the book focuses on a different woman. And I realised through that editorial process that these women were already in the work but they were being perhaps shrouded by male voices of their doctors and the historians who've written about them. And so it took some work of uncovering and looking almost beneath those voices to pull out their experience. Only one of the women I write about has any record of having wrote about herself in her own words. So it was a lot of work and thoughtful work, I suppose, something that really impacted me um, in writing their stories outside of the male lens, although acknowledging that's a key part of the material we're left with, unfortunately, because that's how the medical system is structured. And I would say it's still in that way. A lot of the time looking at case studies now, patients aren't written about as holistic people. In my experience, reading about people in medical journeys, uh, journals who share my journey, I felt dehumanised on behalf of them. So to uncover a little bit of these women outside of the context of the male voices, to let those voices be quieter was really important to me. And then it was such a privilege to share my own life with theirs. I really love that. I, I think that was something that's so striking about sort of having these experiences told side by side is that the, the parallels with how gendered the kind of health system is, you know, there's obviously they've changed a lot, but a lot of the same issues still exist today. And I think, you know, that was quite moving to read about. It's really interesting to kind of think that a book like yours, because so many of these women's stories weren't really told through their own voices, that your book kind of adds to this archive in some way, like in a really feminist way, which I think is really powerful and kind of sort of challenges the kinds of medical journals or the ways that we often, you know, that these women's accounts are recorded and shared, I guess. Mm, I definitely view it as an archive of not only my own experience but a collection of experiences and one of the great joys in publishing the book for me was being able to include a poem that one of the women, Edith, wrote that I contacted the Library of Congress and they scanned it and sent me a series of her poems um, written in German and English on the backs of yellowed envelopes and to be able to have her voice 
on the page in my book just felt uh, really beautiful and fulfilling. I'm curious to know what else you were reading while writing this or before writing this. Are there any other books that influenced the way you structured this novel or your style? When I started going through the process of diagnosis and was feeling uncertain and perhaps traumatised, I was given Siri Husfit's book, The Shaking Woman by Mum, which was really fortuitous. She handed it to me and said, I think you should read this. And I didn't then know that Siri was writing about what I would eventually be diagnosed with, but the way she connected with touchstones in history and wrote about her own body felt like it wasn't just a book I was reading but it was almost a touchstone and a connection for my own life in that moment and I've returned to that book through writing Hysteria and then when it was published mum actually gifted me the copy she had lent me. So that's been a funny weaving between my own work and series whose all of her work I love, but this book will always be connected with my life. You live in Adelaide and you've been out of lockdown for a couple of months now, but um, it's been a strange year. How have you approached reading this year? What kinds of things have you been drawn to or what have you found that's held your attention? I found a lot of comfort in reading this year, I suppose, because reading is one of the few things that quiets the mind. It's so fully immersive and it allows you to live within someone else almost for a moment. So I've been reading works that have kind of touched on two things I find very warming. Um, So the first is animals. I've been reading uh, The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay and, of course, Fathoms by Rebecca Giggs. And I've also found comfort in YA, so the F Team by Rawa Arja and Peter Lyers Rating Normal by Anna Watley. And all of these books are quite recently published by Australian women and a few of them are own voices books too. So I found a lot of hope and joy in these ones. And then, of course, Kylie Maslin's book, Show Me Where It Hurts, has been a wonderful connection with hysteria as well. What what do you make of the fact that Kylie's book and a few others published by Australian women and non-binary writers are kind of out at the same time, published this at the same time? And I I know from kind of reading about um what other books have been acquired, there are more to come. Do you feel um how do you feel about do you see this as a shift in in sort of in publishing but also like a societal shift in kind of 
carving out space for women to tell their own stories of chronic and invisible illness? Do you feel hopeful about this? I feel hopeful in that as readers we're listening that has such an impact from my own experience as a reader which is what I view myself as before a writer the power of reading someone's experience that can touch on your own is really quite amazing so I have a lot of joy and hope that these books will find their people and the people reading them will feel understood or that there's a pathway for them. I am hesitant to extend this hope into systemic change that needs to happen around affordability of medical care and respect and empathy within medical care but it's a small seed of a conversation that's beginning and that makes me feel like we're moving towards something that one day can be better. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. I'd love you to read a little bit from Hysteria for us. Um, Is there anything you need to say first to set up the extract? I chose this part of the book because it has a lot of parallels to living in isolation now and it connects with, I suppose, what it is to be within your house each day and to look at the space around you that may feel ordinary but afresh. Beautiful. Take it away. (laughs) I decide to lock myself away. It's to look after my brain, I say, to lower the anxiety that lives at a high hum in my bones. During this time, I don't do much. I write with my dog beside me, feet twitching as she sleeps. I see my parents go to work twice a week to make rent, thanking my mind that a seizure has not yet occurred in front of students. If I were religious, I would pray to anyone for this to continue. And most of all, I try to sleep at night. It's a stripped-down existence, but it is still whole. I begin to relax and feel the ligaments and muscles unclench within me. At some point, the message of healing rest becomes lost and I begin to fear being outside. I worry that to be present and fully engage, to take everything around me in will bring on a seizure. I morph from someone who is sick to this meek thing. I try not to remember how I used to be vibrant, a force out in the world. Where I once spoke out, I am now quiet. I let Matthew speak for me while I look down and examine my hands. For the first time, I notice a small scar shaped like a T on my right index finger. I take to looking at it when I become overwhelmed. Through the seizures, I've noticed that my interior world has become increasingly compelling. 
and so I think more than I speak. I am caught in a world I hadn't fully been aware of. The seizures have not gone away, they've only been dampened. Instead of big rushes of alien thoughts and shrinking walls, they have begun to integrate in small ways into my daily life. I look at faces and am amazed, caught in wonder at these things built from muscle and skin. It's as though I've only seen half a dozen people in my life. Each face is magical. The shapes catch my eye and I stare at everyone I pass. My eyes fixate on the smallest details. I'm struck by the way the light catches and beams off the red leather lounge in Mum's study. I stare at it while she speaks, her words drifting into me. I've been in this room with that same couch thousands of times. I would watch The Simpsons here as a child and then on to the OC and Frasier in my teen years. Only now the shine of it catches me off guard and I feel a sense of wonder. I take up yoga again. Matthew surprises me with a gift of ten classes. We never give gifts, not for Christmas or the birthday we coincidentally share. He wants to help, I think. So when he tells me what he's done, I smile hard and try not to cry. In our first class, the yoga teacher tells us that the positions we fold ourselves into should not cause us pain. We stretch out on the floor and my foot brushes Matthews. He's warm and soft. He turns and smiles at me and I'm caught up in the kindness of him. No pain, no discomfort, the instructor repeats over and over as her feet pad lightly around the room, watching us as we bend over ourselves. I try to adopt this way of thinking. I whisper her words to myself, hoping they will drape over my own world like an incantation. I leave the house, no pain. When I take a step, I can feel the harshness of the pavement thundering up my feet into my knees. I miss the softness of walking barefoot through my corridor, my garden. No discomfort. I'm in the car and watch the flickering, changing faces of people on the street. I see a white-haired man with long sideburns and am drawn in. No pain. My eyes fixate on the dotted grooves of a ceiling, reminding me of Lego bricks or a crumbling block of cheese. It hurts to pull my vision away. No discomfort. I now wonder what's worse, full seizures or drifting absently from one place to another. Like a ghost, I affect nothing, only witness. I'm not sure if I'm healing or whether I'm becoming a fractured version of myself. I think again of the woman in the depersonalization book, feeling unreal. I read her words over and over. She says, Yet sometimes I feel a little sorry for them, especially when they're overly self-confident. They think they know who they really are. I wonder how I fit within this illness. Is recovery meant to hurt or am I becoming sicker? Thank you so much, Katerina. That was beautiful. You've been listening to Take Home Reading, a Wheeler Centre audio series. That was Katerina Bryant reading from her debut memoir, Hysteria. 
It's published by New South Books and available now. Please shop local and support new Australian work. We'll be back soon with another episode of Take Home Reading. Until then, visit wheelercentre.com for the best in books, writing and ideas from Melbourne, Australia and the world.